This program is sponsored by North Valley Church of Christ. There's a message true and glad for the sinful and the sad. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. It will give them courage new. It will help them to be true. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring out. All right. Good afternoon, folks, and welcome back to another episode of Redeeming the Time. I'm your host, Chris Macy. And I'm the minister here with the North Valley Church of Christ. Well, I'm glad that you are all here with me today. We're going to be taking a look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 10. And uh, we're going to be looking at some of those, or most of the Beatitudes. Now, I'm going to be approaching this a little different than I have done this in the past. I'm not going to be diving deep. At least, I don't, I don't think I'm going to be diving deep into this. But I want us to look at these Beatitudes from the perspective of a servant. And we're going to break this up into two parts. So there's uh, eight Beatitudes here. But I want us to look at the first four today. And next week we'll, we'll look at the second set from there. Okay, so well, um, not, not much going on here at North Valley this week. Just going to give you an update on things. We had to... Cancel tackling the text workshop uh, due to some medical issues with uh, the Orbison family. But we are hopeful that perhaps next year we'll be able to get that back on track. I know it's been two years in a row. It's always tough to come back from, but we'll see what happens. Thanksgiving is coming up here in just a few short weeks. And then Christmas and many things, uh, many things, good things coming along. Always try to be as joyful and happy as you can. Have that positive spirit looking beyond this world to what's coming next for those who are in Christ. Let's get started. Have you ever asked a kid what what they want to be when they grow up? I mean, I, I asked this kid, or this kid, I asked uh, this question of my kids and other kids and you know, the answers range. Engineer, pilot, doctor, scientist, teacher, lawyer, writer, astronaut, veterinarian, athlete, actress, actor, all these different things. One little boy said he wanted to be a car mechanic or a garbage collector. And what struck me struck me as interesting about that is that those two things are so different. Okay, a car mechanic or a garbage collector? Now, this is a kid. You know, kids don't just grab random things, I don't, I don't think, when it comes to this sort of thing. They've got a reason in their mind. So I thought, well, what is the connection between these two things, why he wants to be them? So I asked, well, why? Why, why do you want to be one of those? And he had a very simple answer. So I can get dirty. <laughs> right. So I can get dirty. So I guess his mom doesn't let him get dirty very often. I don't know. But I thought that was, uh, that was great. When I was a kid, of course, I was a. I grew up in the seventies, eighties. I wanted to be an astronaut, probably like every other kid out there wanted to be an astronaut. But let's take that same question: What do you want to be when you grow up? And let's ask it another way. Imagine asking Jesus what He wants us to be when we grow up. And now suddenly, that that changes everything, right? It's a whole new question. I can imagine Jesus answering, I want you to grow up to be different. I want you to grow up to be a servant. We could interview thousands of children, 
tens of thousands. I, I don't think we would ever hear any of them ever say <clears throat> that they want to grow up to be a servant. Yet that is what God wants for each one of us. He wants us to become a servant like Jesus was a servant. So I want us to spend this this afternoon, and of course next week, talking about the portrait of a servant. What does a servant look like? What character traits form the profile of the servant? And so we're going to look here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount to try to answer those questions. Now, the main point in the, the Sermon on the Mount is, sim- is simply be different. You know, the thematic verse for the Sermon on the Mount is found in chapter 5, verse 20. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And in other words, you know, you're, here's where the, the religious elite of that day, they're here. And they're not going to make it to heaven. They got the wrong attitude. So your your righteousness needs to exceed theirs. Oh, Jesus, how do we do that? Well, he's going to he's going to show them. Over and over again, throughout the whole sermon, Jesus states the way things were among the religious types of his day, and then he would instruct them how to be different. And the formula went like this: You have heard of old that it was said, but I say to you. And so Think about that. And we may uh, hit on a few things found throughout, but uh, I, I am going to not dive. I, ho- I don't think I'm going to be diving too deep into these, but um, I do want us to look at this from the perspective of a servant. So we may not hit on everything that's being said in the Beatitudes. I want us to see this from a servant's perspective. So this first section, uh, obviously most familiar to most folks, the Beatitudes, the attitudes you need to be if you want to be an or a disciple of Christ. So let's take a look at these. Let's read them first. Chapter 5 of Matthew, verses 3 through 10. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, For they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's make a couple of general observations about these statements. Number one, these are eight character traits that identify true servanthood. Eight character traits that identify true servanthood. When all eight of these are are brought into a person's life, a balance emerges. And this list is not meant to be a multiple choice list, is it? You know, where we can, where we are free to pick and choose our our favorite ones. Let's say, uh, poor in spirit, I'll do that. Mourn, absolutely. Gentle, I can do that. Oh, pure and hard. Peacemaker? Uh, I'm going to skip on peacemaker. I don't want to do that. No, it doesn't work like that. Jesus, our Savior, our example, has listed these qualities here because these lead, all of these together, lead to the different lifestyle that pleases God. 
Okay, so that's the first thing. Eight character traits that identify true servanthood. Number two, these traits open the door to an inner happiness and joy. When pursued, when these things are embodied within us, result, these things result in a true satisfaction. This lifestyle offers fulfillment like nothing else on earth. And each of the characteristics begin with that word blessed, which can be translated as happy or how happy. This is the only time that Jesus repeats the same term eight times consecutively like this. That's just an interesting thought there. But those people who develop these attitudes find lasting happiness. They find lasting joy, right? Number three, and finally, we notice that attached to each character trait is a corresponding promise. Each characteristic leads to a promised blessing. And what a wonderful promises they are. We'll take a look at those as we work through these. So with that in mind, let's take a look at these. And we're not going to go through all eight again. Uh, I don't want us to just skim over them. So we're going to break these up into two sections of four. We're going to look at the first four today. And then next week, we'll look at the next four. All right? All right. So let's begin. We're going to start with a servant is poor in spirit. At first glance, maybe some mistakenly think that Jesus is talking about blessed are the poor. You know, uh, thinking he's referring to little money or no money or people with zero financial security, things like that. But it's not. That's not. That's obviously not it. When you really stop and think about it, you look more closely. Uh, blessed are the poor in the spirit. That's where the poor is at. The poor is not in financial means, but in the spirit, within the mind and heart. The spirit is your mind and heart. The, the mind is where you gather in all that knowledge and information, and the heart's where you make a decision. And you make that decision based on all the stuff you have in your mind. And if you are in Christ, if you're striving to be like him, you're going to make decisions based on what he says and does. But it also shows being poor that you recognize something about who you are. So being poor in spirit is an attitude of absolute unvarnished humility. It is recognizing that you really have nothing except God. Uh, poor comes from the word that signifies a man crouching like a beggar, totally destitute. Spirit has to do with one's own disposition, disposition or attitude about yourself. So being poor in spirit means more than just being humble in the usual understanding of the word. It is so different than the world's attitude, and especially that of the scribes and Pharisees. It's recognizing who you are. We're going to dive deeper into that when we get into the promise. And I want you, and we'll get into that here in a moment. So, a servant is a person who sees themselves as spiritually bankrupt, deserving of nothing, turn, <clears throat> who turns to Almighty God in total trust because they are in great need. It, it makes me think of that hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Vile I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Of course, I'm not singing that, but you, you, you hear that, right? You can see what I'm talking about there. It makes me also think about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember that from a... The book of Luke, or I think it's also in the, the other uh, Gospels, but the, the one man so proud, the, the Pharisee, 
You know, he's looking up to heaven. Oh, Lord, aren't you so glad you have someone like me and that I'm not like this fellow over here, the tax collector, who wasn't even willing to raise his head and eyes to heaven, but looked down, beating his chest, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The one failed to ask God for mercy and therefore received none. The other asked God for mercy and received it. This spirit of humility, very rare in our day and age with the way things are. This is why we're called to be different. We are called to be servants with humble hearts. And Jesus gives a special promise that goes with the trait of spiritual helplessness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The indispensable condition of receiving a part of the kingdom of heaven is acknowledging our spiritual poverty. The person who is poor in spirit is like a child who trusts completely in his or her parents' provision and is promised a place in Christ's kingdom. And the kingdom is the reign of God in the hearts of men. Only the poor in spirit will look and seek out God. But those who are not poor in spirit, who think, you know, a greatly of themselves. Are they going to look for God? They don't think they need God. They don't need salvation. They don't need forgiveness. They're arrogant. They're not poor in spirit. So why would they be seeking it out? You see what I'm talking about? Therefore, one's a servant. The other will not serve. Number two, a servant mourns. Servant mourns. Jesus chose a strong term here when he said, blessed are those who mourn, it's a, a heavy word, passionate, uh, lament for the, for one who, who is loved with profound devotion. Uh, but let me first say what Jesus is not referring to. He's not referring to the idea that being a Christian means being gloomy. You know, having that religious look of mourning. Oh, woe is me kind of idea. Not that. It's the, the idea of every kind of mourner will receive comfort. Leave it in this context. What he is referring to is a spiritual mourning. There is a comfort for those. Mourning naturally follows an attitude of poor in spirit. It cost God so much to deal with our sins, didn't it? He sent his own son to die in our place. And so the mourning that Jesus could be talking about here is the uh, uh when we look out into the world, the lost and dying world, who doesn't see Jesus, and so we mourn over that. Or maybe personal loss, our own sinfulness, recognizing, again, who we are before a great, a great God. And it's interesting, this particular term also includes compassion, a sincere caring for others. When we look out there in the world, I mean, Christ did, didn't he? Didn't Jesus mourn over all the, uh, those who were lost? He would look into Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you together like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not listen. You would not have me. Peter summarized it well when he wrote, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind, brotherly kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. That's 1 Peter 3, 8. A true servant knows what it is to mourn and have sorrow. They have compassion upon others who are suffering. It's sad that some people cannot see the hurting or the need that others have in their heart. Like the, the Good Samaritan, right? He saw it, but the priest and the Levite did not see it, did they? They just walked on by that one fellow who was beaten half to death and left on the side of the road. But we have a, uh, a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, 
He's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That's from Hebrews chapter 4. Jesus has been through everything, and he understands completely what it is that you and I are going through. And so we see how compassionate Jesus was during his ministry, whether it was someone suffering from leprosy or demon possession or or someone who was hungry. Jesus cared, and he looked uh, upon them. There was a time in Luke chapter 7 where he came across that funeral procession. and That poor woman lost her only son. She was a, a, a widow and lost her only son. And he had compassion on her and raised him from the dead. True servants are like the Lord. We know how to mourn and we are filled with compassion. And what's the promise? Jesus says, you will be comforted. It's interesting that there's no mention of the source or the channel of that comfort, but we will be Comforted. And so, what does that mean? The word comfort is talking about, I think you could say three things. You've got an initial comfort, continual comfort, and a final comfort. The initial is found in the removal of our load of guilt and sin. Continual comfort uh, is available to us in the sense of, you know, it may come in the sense of, of prayer or in our studies or when we're around other fellow brothers in Christ. And that final comfort is the final rest done uh when we leave this world and go on to the next, and sin is done with forever, and all the pain and heartache of this world moves away. So perhaps it will come from God. Well, I don't, I don't want to get into that. I want to dive too much into something. But let, let's just see. We've explored two attitudes in true servants, humble dependency, caring compassion, but also a servant is gentle. Gentle. We hear that word gentle. We often get a false impression of you know maybe a negative uh, reaction. You may have heard people say this before as a uh, kind of a joke. Blessed are the weak, for they shall become doormats. Oh man. So again, in our rough, rugged individualism, we think of gentleness or meekness as weakness, being soft, virtually spineless. But that's not at all what Jesus means. The Greek term is talking about strength under control, like a powerful horse who's been broken or trained. It it can be used of a person who remains calm and peaceful when surrounded by a heated atmosphere. It carries the idea of someone who possesses tact and gracious courtesy. It makes me think of David, who many countless times had the power to kill and destroy Saul. But he was gentle. He kept calm in those circumstances and recognizing who he is and who God is. God's the one that makes those decisions, not him. This is God's anointed. I won't harm him. Won't do it. He was gentle. Moses was gentle. Jesus was gentle. He had a zeal for God when he cleansed the temple. But he was gentle. He could have been right in just bringing down fire and brimstone upon all those, but he did not. That's gentle. He was gentle when he's being nailed to the cross. Gentle. And what is the promise that goes with gentleness? They shall inherit the earth. They shall inherit the earth. What does that mean? Now, this concept may refer to at least three things. It may, uh, it may mean the contentment with what we have here on earth. Um, we are the true Christians. We are the true heirs of earth. This is, uh, we are the type of people that God intended the earth to have. Or the earth truly belongs to heirs and not slaves. All right. So the purpose of our life 
is to reflect Christ's life, to be a servant like him. How did Jesus view the earth and the things of it? We ought to ask ourselves that question and answer it in our minds and in our hearts. The ultimate victory will not be won by the wicked. It will be won by the gentle. True servants are meek and gentle, and they are different from the world, and God will keep his promise to them. And then finally, a servant is hungry and thirsty for righteousness. The true servant possesses an insatiable appetite for what is right, a passionate drive for holiness and for justice. We tend to use the terms hunger and thirst you know, kind of lightly. Oh, man, I'm starving, right? That kind of idea. Have you ever said that? I'm starving. I need to get some food. But you're not really starving. You're not really thirsty to the point where you could die. Yet, you know, some have dealt with that. I haven't. There are times where I thought I was, but no, I've never really experienced it. Hunger and thirst are healthy appetites, which bring joy and satisfaction when they're met. But they are torments and tortures when they are not met. Can we honestly say that we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do we understand that God expects that his real servants will be engaged in a pursuit of God's holiness? But do we also understand that this includes not just looking upward toward God, but also a pursuit of vertical holiness toward others? Being a servant with righteousness means that we long for and pursue a holiness and justice on this earth. Matthew 23, verse 23, when Jesus was uh, uh, speaking of the Pharisees, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, and deal, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. The Pharisees were pursuing one part of holiness, giving a tenth to God, but they weren't pursuing other aspects of it, justice and mercy. In God's mind, the giving of a tenth was not as important as uh, justice and mercy, but both were called for. My, my point is not to do one at the exclusion of another. Do them both. The servant of God is hungry and thirsty to achieve all the righteousness that God desires, all of it, including being a servant, caring, compassionate treatment of others, real justice. When you look back at the Old Testament and at the, the minor prophets, and God would be judging all the surrounding nations, surrounding Israel, and and even the northern kingdom, and even Judea, um, what was pretty much the same thing you could find in all of them, how they treated the poor, the orphans, and the fatherless. He always hammered them, everyone, even Israel, on all those things. They missed that. That they weren't being a servant the way he wants them to be. And if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, then we will do these things. And we will be contented in soul and satisfied. We will be. How so? How are we satisfied? Well, that for which uh, we hunger will come to us. Those who really hunger and thirst for righteousness will find it. Not that we'll become perfect, We'll be moving toward that, but we won't become perfect. But we'll be declared righteous before God in spite of our past sins and present imperfections. And so we are filled and satisfied with that, knowing that 
things, our, our conscience has been made clear by God. Second Peter 3.21, the book of Hebrews also brings that out. That's what we're striving for, isn't it? Isn't that what we want? It is. Now, I know we're only halfway through drawing a, a portrait of a servant. But this is, is a good place to stop, you know, getting halfway through. We'll re- review what the picture looks like. But keep in mind that Jesus is describing how we can be his disciples. And part of that is being his servant, standing out as being different from the world. And that would, in his day and age, that would definitely be a contrast to what you see in the scribes and the Pharisees. God honors these character traits, these beatitudes, and he offers special rewards. A servant is genuinely humble and absolutely dependent on God. A servant is one who mourns and feels compassion toward the needy and the hurting. A servant is meek and gentle. A person who is strong inside and yet controlled on the outside. A servant has a passionate appetite for righteousness in their own lives and justice in the world. So, let me ask you this question again. What do you want to be when you grow up? Hopefully, you want to be a servant of God. Let's let's ask ourselves, how well are we doing in living up to this portrait of a servant? Which of these character traits do each of us need to work on and ask for God's help with. Let's concentrate on becoming like this portrait. And in the end, we will be happy we did. What a what a great great uh, a sermon that Jesus gives us here at the Sermon on the Mount. I encourage you to read it, the whole thing. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. He's talking about so much here. And I encourage you to, to bring that into your mind and into your heart. Thank you again for being here with us. If you like this program, I hope you would go on our uh, website, www.nbcoc.net. Click on that radio mic. You'll find this program, all our previous programs. And you can learn more about the North Valley Congregation from that website as well. And I hope you take a look at that and uh, come out here and visit with us. We're right on the Dynamite Road in between Tatum and Scottsdale. Come check us out. We'd love to have you. And I'd love to hear what you think about the radio program. Thank you all. Be good. Keep striving to do right before the Lord in all things. It's in his name that we are so thankful for all this and for giving us his son. Thank you for being here. Till the sinful world be one for Jehovah's mighty son. Ring it out. Ring it out. Ring it out. This program was sponsored by North Valley Church of Christ.